everybody Beth Walsh Stewart in the Koinonia kitchen recording again we're doing the second part of a podcast on identity theology hopefully you've listened to the first one and you remember my assumption my assumption if you're listening to this podcast is that you had an experience with Christ and you're listening because you want to know him better and serve him more deeply you called on him and he came in truth and when you came to believe in him fully you were filled with his spirit. You know, in my book, that means you were changed to a kingdom kid, uh, a partaker of the new covenant. You're no longer of this world, though you are in it. And though you live in this world, your identity is not based on what you think about yourself anymore. It's not based on what your neighbor thinks about you either, or what you think you could aspire to do. Your identity is now based on the fact that you are no longer separated from the Father God because of what Jesus Christ did for you. Yeah, Jesus. He is fully God. He walked this earth as a man, as the second Adam, privy to all the temptations, pains, heartaches, and hatred that we humans will experience. The price he paid on Calvary was great, but add to the price that he paid by just leaving his heavenly home and coming here to be our sacrificial lamb. Can you even imagine the moment when our sin hit him and he cried out, why have you forsaken me? He had never felt a separation from Jehovah God. And in an instant, the instant my sin hit him, while hanging on that tree, he knew the agony of separation. If you were the only one that needed that sacrifice, he would have done it just for you. That is your identity. That is who you are. And when we come to know this as truth, it really does set us free, just like he told us it would in John chapter 8, verse 32. You know, I keep mentioning that Jesus was the the second Adam. I'm, last week I asked you to listen to a podcast and I, I gave you a scripture to look up. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 45 to 49. In case you weren't able to do that, I'm going to read that scripture so that you more fully understand why I'm saying that Jesus was the second Adam. 45. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual, however, was not first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are all those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so also shall we bear the likeness of the heavenly man. That's pretty good news. 
So let's review what we've been talking about. When God created man, he pulled out all the stops, creating him in his own image. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's from Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Clearly, this information was intrinsic to man's understanding of his created nature because God made sure it was repeated in Scripture a few chapters later. So flip to Genesis 5, 1 and 2. And again, he's going to mention that he created us in his image. And then Genesis 9, verse 6. Again, he wanted us to know we were created in his image. Can you get that as part of your identity? You were created in the image of the Almighty God. For years, theologians have speculated on what, spe what specific trait man has to, to, to explain the claim that he was created in the image of God. How is that a viable principle? And when we look at the scripture again, the Hebrew word that was used for image in these verses is tselem, T-S-E-L-E-M. This word choice gives a lot of insight into the meaning of the scripture. The fact that this image is in both male and female form gives us a hint that it's not just looks we're talking about here. However, the phrase, according to our likeness, is a better point for this argument. The Hebrew word for likeness, demut, means similar to, or resembling, or in a pattern of. But image is something quite different. The Hebrew word for shadow is tsel, T-S-E-L. And it comes out of the word tselem, T-S-E-L-M. The word shadow comes out of the word image. And we don't look like our shadows, but our shadow behaves exactly as we do. So if we jump, so does our shadow. If we wave, so does our shadow. Um, it's an exact replica, a mirrored image of who and what we are. We don't look like it, but we behave like it. This was that I just took that piece out of a paper I wrote. It was written by another person trying to describe how he understood how we were created in the image of God. You know, the creator pointed it out three times in the first nine chapters of the Bible. So it's almost as if God wants us to delve deeper. So if a shadow imitates the actions of the original self, it is not a reproduction of that self. Are you ready for this part? You only get a shadow if you add light. The interesting fact suggests a greater meaning to the maker's design. Without the light, a shadow cannot exist. Without the light of the world, man is left to his own devices. So if Adam hadn't sinned, what would it be like today? Can you imagine this earth if there was nothing evil here? 
that was God's plan. So basically, we'd be like cruising through life in a garden, subduing the earth and having dominion over the animals and co-creating with God. And he'd be walking around with us, shining his face on us. It is only unholiness that kept God from hanging out with us because God is all good. Look up Psalm 8 for that. God is all good. And when we introduced unholiness or evil, he had to turn his face from us. So who are you? That's what these podcasts are about. But to know who you are and how treasured you are by the king of creation, we have to consider the incredible sacrifice of Jesus. I mean, was it really just the cross? I know that that looks terrible. And so many of us are fooled to think that that was his greatest sacrifice. But what do you know about the God we serve? He's a God of covenant. He finishes what he starts. I'm going to give you a few scriptures to look up on your own time. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Matthew 26, verse 38. And Isaiah 24, 5. Through Adam, man had a covenant with death. God is always true. He is Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is going to finish that which he starts. So remember, he said, on the day you eat this fruit, you will surely die. That had to stand because God is holy. There is no lying in God. There is no deceit in God. What he says is true. Jesus called himself the way, the truth, and the life because what he is, is truth. So look at Isaiah 28, 16 to 18. He promised to break the covenant of death by creating a new covenant. What did Jesus say at the Last Supper? Most of us that celebrate communion will hear these words spoken again and again. We hear the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. The forgiveness of sin had to come from death, and it had to come from the death of someone who knew no unholiness. But there was never going to be a human being who could fit that bill. So God became man and dwelt among us. Jesus became the second Adam. Maybe that's why he identified himself as the son of man. The phrase was used in the Torah over a hundred times. Most of them were to describe an unremarkable man. But then in the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 7, verses 12 to 14, the phrase comes up and it's in a vision of the judgment of God. Isn't it strange that Jesus wanted people to identify him as the one who will be there on judgment day? The term son of man was used in the gospels, you ready for this? 81 times. There is one major difference from when the term is used in the Torah. In the New Testament, the article the is added. Clearly, Christ wanted everyone to know 
that though he walked as a mere man, he was also the divine judge of all. One of the greatest parts of his sacrifice was to live a purely human life on earth and to become a worthy stand-in for Adam. When you look at the temptation in the desert, starving and tired after 40 days of fasting, he was offered purely human rewards, bread, safety, security, power. But the temptation wasn't just to get Christ to engage with Satan. Satan was trying to get Christ to step out of his humanity, to use his divinity for himself, not for us. Jesus never used his divinity for himself, only for us. That's an amazing thing when you look back on his life. Read it again. Read the Gospels. Anytime there was supernatural power exhibited, it was not for self. It was always for others or to show that God was almighty and that the kingdom of God was at hand. Selfish and self-centeredness are unholy. Any sin would have nullified the covenant perfection that was needed to reset right relationship with God. The new covenant would have been foiled if Jesus had acted in any selfish or self-centered way. Think of the word unholiness. Can God's shadow be unholy? I mean, remember the Hebrew words? We needed a man, God's shadow, who would always rep replicate what God would do. So Jesus came. That's how much God loves us. He knew we wouldn't be able to manage this alone. Now, what does this have to do with your identity? Everything. You are a new creation. You're a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells you that. The Greek words used in that are kainokistis. Kaino, K-A-I-N-O, a Greek word that means fresh, new, previously unknown. Kistis, K-T-I-S-I-S, exclusively God's work. So you, my friend, are no longer unholy. You are holy. You are whole. When God looks at you, he looks through Jesus to see you. Let's take a few further thoughts. Saved from or saved to? If Christ came only to manage sin, the cost would have been too great. He came to save us from sin and death. But the important part is what we are saved to. We are saved to live as citizens in God's kingdom. We are being prepared to rule with him for all eternity. What is Jesus coming to establish? He says it all the time in Matthew 13. He spoke in parables. In each, he tried to describe the kingdom of heaven. Paul called it an incorruptible kingdom in Hebrews 12, which is expanded by the sons and daughters of the king. We are the sons and daughters, guys. We are the sons and daughters of the king. We were meant to be in the kingdom. We can live like it now, 
Or we can be deceived by the evil one that it only comes to us when we die in this life. Did you get that? You can live like a kingdom kid starting right now. What did the cross accomplish? God was setting up his administration and his king was proven to be totally righteous in front of all his citizens. To others, it's fiction, poppycock, a story, a, a legend, a religious teaching with no merit. But to those who belong to the kingdom, we will always see Jesus as our king of forever. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, he meant the devil's work is finished. Sin and death, they are finished. We were created to walk in that garden with God, but God cannot walk with unholiness. So when Christ died, unholiness was separated from us and we became worthy citizens of the kingdom, not because of who we are or what we did, but because what Jesus did for us. You've heard the, the tale that when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the temple was ripped in two. What was finished? The Abrahamic law, the covenant, was over because now anybody could get to the Holy of Holies. Anybody could walk with the king as long as they went through Christ. Everyone wants it to be uh, so that we can justify our faults. No, the, the covenant of sin and death is finished. We can finally live out the intention of God the Father. What the cross accomplished was setting up the kingdom of God. What did John the Baptist say? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Near, not here. It wasn't here until sin and death died, was buried, and rose again. Think of your baptism. The old man goes into the water, got dunked like a burial, and comes up, kenos kistes, a new creation. Why did Jesus ask us to do that? Why did he ask us to do, to do in memory of him, to do communion, Eucharist, body and blood, symbols of the new covenant so that sin could be forgiven? Why in his memory? Because although we are new creations, we are still stuck here in these old bodies on a planet full of sin. So what can this mean? Overcoming sin with a call to the kingdom, recognizing the Jesus in others, undergoing trans transformation as we seek him more. We will be changed. This is an ongoing event as long as we're living. This is who you are. You have been redeemed. You are holy enough to walk with God because of what Jesus Christ did for you. I'd ask you to go and read Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. You're going to be glad you did. We're going to have more about this identity theology. Tune in for our next podcast. It's time to take addiction out of the shadows and shine the encouraging light of recovery on everyone affected. Good Seed Podcast is powered by BethWE.com, a nonprofit ministry based in Vero Beach, Florida. We'll start the uncomfortable conversations that turn despair into hope 
and complacency into action. Connect, communicate, and thrive with us. Check us out online at bethwe.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk again soon.